Hello, everyone, and welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Justin Scase, editor of the EHS Daily Advisor and Safety Decisions Magazine. If you're an EHS professional, your organization's safety culture must be a major focus. But a strong culture can be tricky to build. Sure, it's easy to say that you want a safety culture built on inspiration, not fear, and that the goal is for employee engagement and safety to be positively pursued, not mandated. But how do you walk that line between encouragement and discipline, between being a safety coach and being a safety cop? Well, our guest on today's episode has some suggestions. Here with us today on EHS on Tap is Sean M. Galloway, president of Proact Safety. Sean is a consultant, professional speaker, and author of several best-selling books on safety strategy, culture, leadership, and behavior-based safety. His clients include most of the best safety-performing organizations within every major industry, and he has received awards for his significant contributions from multiple organizations, including the American Society of Safety Engineers, soon to be the American Society of Safety Professionals. So, Sean, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Great. So first, a general question for you. Safety culture has become a huge area of interest and concern for employers. Why is safety culture particularly important in today's EHS landscape? It's interesting. I've been working on this for a while. And even your comment about inspiration and fear, I wrote an article back in, I think it was 2010, 2011, called Fear and Inspiration, Two Sides of the Motivational Coin. So this is something I've been looking at for quite a while. But when you look at, when you look at culture, it really is the last frontier of safety excellence. You know, in the seventies, early seventies, when at least within the United States, OSHA came about, that first decade was really focusing on conditions and we should always start there. However, we realized the limitations and in the late seventies and early eighties, the behavioral approaches started becoming in vogue because we realized it's not just the workplace conditions. It's also what people do within those workplace conditions. And then a lot of work in theory and methodology has been created to help us understand, well, why do people do what they do? Because there's always influences on behavior. We tell people that behavior can never be the root cause of an injury. Unfortunately, we stop there sometimes because we can't answer the next why question. Well, why were they doing it? And then the story I tell in 86, two major events, Challenger and Chernobyl, occurred in January and April of 86 that created the term safety culture. And what's interesting is although there's been a lot of work and my partner, Terry Mathis, who's the CEO of our firm, wrote one of the first books on safety culture. And we put our methodology in the public domain in our 2013 book called Steps to Safety Culture Excellence, because we realized there's there's a lot more theory than how do you do it available. But unfortunately, I think it's because a lot of people don't understand it. It's easier to have this nebulous thing called safety culture and kind of say, well, it's our culture that needs to be improved. When in fact, you know, culture is a byproduct. It's like a result. You know, zero injuries or an excellent safety performance rate is the byproduct of all the things that you're doing. Uh, zero injuries is the byproduct of focusing on excellence and safety. And the culture that you have is a byproduct. I believe it was Dimming that pointed out that your organizational systems are perfectly designed to give you the results you're currently receiving. 
So when we look at opportunity, not only is it unfortunately sometimes a default go-to factor, well, it's our culture. Really what culture is, it's what's common in an organization. While everyone has common beliefs, common behaviors and decisions that are carried out in behaviors, and even common stories, which is the tribal part of all culture, there's really no such thing as safety culture. Now, we've written and done a lot of work in this area, and we give it terms like that so we can create frameworks of conversation. But safety is just a part of the organizational and occupational culture. But when we can get, and this is, this is the thing that seems so appealing to a lot of people, and rightfully so, when we can make certain decisions common, when we can make certain beliefs common, certain behaviors, both of what's required to be an employee, but also what would be most effective to be desired, voluntary of an employee to help us improve performance and and everything. When we can make that common, then it's much more sustainable because culture is really the sustainability factor. Just like habits in a human are the sustainability factors, culture within a group of individuals is the sustainability factor. When we're no longer having to prod or provoke or heaven forbid, incentivize, you know, action within the organization when it becomes that, well, people want to be engaged versus we're doing things to prompt or nudge them to be engaged. Then we know we're we're much more confident that our results are real. So that's really why I think people have gravitated towards this since the late eighties is that if we want confident that our results are real and if we don't, if we can't see that in common that explains why we have the results, then we fall into, well, maybe it's more luck or maybe it's more what's called Hawthorne effect. We're focusing on something. We get improvement just because we're focusing. But if we can make things common, we feel confident that we're doing the right things in safety. Hmm. So going a little bit deeper, sometimes it seems like employees just comply with safety rules out of fear of getting in trouble. So how can managers create a culture that encourages voluntary rather than, for lack of a better word, coerced engagement with safety? Well, we teach there's four questions you need to be able to ask and answer if you're going to affect performance in another human being. Number one is, what is it you want that person to do? And that's where it does have to be behaviorally defined. You can't just say, be safe, drive safe, don't get hurt. It has to be defined by specifically what action will yield that no hurt results. Number two, then, is how do you communicate it to them? How do you get it out of your head and into their head? And we've proven this for years now that if you don't get a behavioral focus, what you want somebody to do in somebody's head, it will never get in their habits. You have to go through the conscious to get to the subconscious. And if you have a key areas of focus that these are the most important things I I really want you to do at your discretion. And a month later, nobody knows them. Well, then you haven't gotten into their heads. But then in the behavioral sciences, the final two questions, what happens if they do it and what happens if they don't? It's what's referred to as a balance of consequences. And in safety, we tend to have a lot more answers to what happens if they don't than if they do. We call that progressive discipline. More and more companies today, when I ask this of audiences, are responding that they do have progressive recognition approaches. We recognize those that are going above and beyond, but it's also hard hardwired in us as humans to do what's referred to as management by exception. We look for the things that are out of place, like the employee not wearing the PPE 
regardless of all the extra work that employee might have just been doing to coach their fellow coworker and cleaning up the environment. But we see the exception and we address it. And a story I often tell in keynotes and, and events with clients is a few years ago, I was assessing the culture of an organization in the southeast part of the United States. They'd been very good in safety, but felt as though they're starting to regress. And the culture asked me to come in and take a look. And I've done hundreds of these projects, but I'm never going to forget what this one lady said to me. It was a group of eight employees. We we're interviewing people by level. And this lady said to me, quote, you know, in a few months, I'm going to retire after 30 years here. The only time they've ever talked to me about safety is when I've done something wrong. Just once before I retire, I wish they'd tell me when I've done something right. So we say things sometimes just to provoke a different way of thinking about things with, with leaders. And one of the little sad jokes, if you will, we have in ProAct Safety is that the reality is most people wake up motivated. The problem is, is that they come to work and it gets beaten out of them. So we need to have that motivate, demotivate conversation. First off, what would success look like? What is it that we would see within our culture that tells us it's sustainable, we're doing the right things? But then it goes into what are we doing that's currently motivating? What are we doing that's currently demotivating? And the demotivating is what you need to work to try to neutralize first. A simple example is near miss reporting. Uh, the main reasons why people don't report near misses is because they don't understand it. There's not clarity of definition, what it is and what it isn't. They don't think they have time to report anything. They don't think that anybody's going to do anything with this information anyways. Or the fourth one is something bad might happen to me if I do. So back to that fear. So we're hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And if they think that participation or something might create that, then they're going to work to avoid it. It's a fight, flight, freeze mechanism. But this is where leaders have to have the conversation to be specific around what beliefs would make the behaviors easier for employees to provide. Then it, it falls on the leadership. What would be the experiences of those employees if they acted on the desired beliefs? If an employee stops a job for a safety concern and the supervisor says, Trust me, Justin, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Go back to work. That's not a good enough experience for the employee to say, you know what? I feel confident doing that again. So we have to, final point on this, I guess, is we as leaders are ultimately responsible for the experiences and the storytelling that exists within the organization. And if we're not managing the experiences and we're not managing the storytelling, a narrative will be created and it might not be the right narrative. Hmm. Okay. So, of course, I assume all of this isn't to say that discipline has no place in safety culture. So how can EHS managers effectively apply discipline without damaging their cultural efforts? Well, I believe discipline is absolutely a tool of last resort for flagrant, willing, repeat violators. You know, we, we're human. We're fallible. We, we can make mistakes. I actually... Last night had a conversation with a dinner with one of my neighbors that's a, a pilot for one of the major airlines here in America. And previously he was an Air Force fighter pilot and we were talking about safety and everything. And he described a safety investigation that he set, set in on as an officer. And he, he explained how the pilot had explained. And, you know, this is, you know, Air Force language. So I don't remember exactly how he described it, but he lost control of the plane and it began to roll. 
and the plane wasn't responding as he was going left and right. So he ejected because he, he knew something bad was going to happen. So during this investigation, the plane was still in 7,000 feet of water, but they wanted to, as he said, hang it on the pilot, blame the pilot for his error. It's so much easier to jump to human factors or to blame the individual. What, what we teach is, and this is common sense really, but people do things for a reason. We have to identify and address the reason. And there's two frameworks we teach. If it's somebody is doing something that um, that they shouldn't be doing, and uh, a good friend of mine, Tim, Dr. Tim Lugwood, just wrote a book called Dysfunctional Practices. And that'd be a book that I, I would recommend to people because he talks about in this book that it's so easy for people to jump to categorizing, well, that person must just be stupid. <laughs> well, people do things for a reason. And from an influencing on risk, we teach that there's four main influences. And you can go deeper with this, but it's people's perception about the risk. You know, I've done this many times, never gotten injured. And how we've measured safety, the absence of injuries must mean that as long as I don't get hurt, it must be safe. So the perception, but it's also people's existing habits. But then there's outside the individual is what we just refer to as obstacles and barriers. If they're not using the right tool for the job because it's inconveniently located or we ran out of the tool and we have a purchasing issue, you know, that's an that's an organizational external influence. But then there's also to take it deeper. And if anyone's interested in this, we have articles and paper on this. And I'm, I'm always happy to share. But there's also five main reasons why you have undesirable performance. Number one, and you'll see a bell curve of distribution. There are some people that are just unwilling to do what you need them to do. And that's where sometimes discipline or, or deselection may be the only tool you have. Number two is that they're unaware. No one's ever really sat down and made the expectations crystal clear. Number three is that they're unable. Either there's factors that make it difficult or you want your supervisors to be better coaches, but we've never trained them or developed the, the confidence in how to have those coaching conversations. Number four, they're unaccountable. We tend to hold people accountable for the results, not performance accountability, proactive accountability, making sure they're doing the things necessary to get the results uh, before checking to see how did things turn out. And then five, it's just completely unlike the culture. You train somebody in how to report a near miss. They, You make sure even a quiz, they understand what a near miss is. They know nothing bad is going to happen to them and how we're going to use this information to help us prevent other types of events. But they leave this training and even their boss and coworkers say, don't waste your time. They don't care. So discipline does have a place if somebody is purposefully violating something. But but my argument is usually that that's not the case. You use it as a last tool of resort, but you also, prior to falling into that, need to explore and understand the influences on behavior. Okay. So uh, could you give us just some uh, a few effective coaching strategies or employee motivating factors that our listeners can be aware of? Oh, good one. So I would go back to those four questions that if you're going to effectively coach somebody, you need to know what you're coaching for and you can't coach for results, at least not ethically. <laughs> so <laughs> you need to understand specifically what you want to coach for. So an analogy that I came up with a few Olympics ago is I just refer to it as the Olympics analogy. I, I like simple descriptions, I guess. So when the Olympics occurs hours ahead of us and because all countries are chasing the medal counts, we tend to hear who meddled in an event 
before we see that performance because we're competing against China and Russia and Canada and all the other major contributors to to the games. So we hear who meddled in an event. And because not just of time delay, there's a lot of activities occurring at the same time. Later that day, when we already knew who received the gold, silver, bronze, and we watched that performance, we say to ourselves, that's why she got the gold, or that's why he missed it and only got the silver, because we could see the performance that contributed to the results. So use that analogy and say, what is the performance that we want to focus on? And there's three Fs, if you will, that we teach around coaching. Focus, feedback, and facilitate. Focus you need to be specific about what you're coaching for. And you want to coach for the desired behavior rather than trying to stop or extinguish behavior. And that's the problem with discipline and punishment is that's a behavioral extinguishing tool. Punishing an employee for not wearing their personal protective equipment may not change the behavior to where they always do. They may actually start setting a lookout. I had a plant in Louisiana when I first started working with them Whenever management would walk out on the floor, you would hear, call, call. It was bird signs people were throwing around the plant to let everyone know management was on the floor. I had another <laughs> company that that whenever whenever the safety professional would visit the site, over the loudspeaker, he would hear, Charlie, 223, Charlie, 223. And somebody pulled him aside and told him that that was code for the safety guys on site, the safety guys on site. So you have to look for what you want rather than what you don't want. Feedback, the purpose of feedback is to encourage effective future performance. And then facilitate is how do we make it easy for them to be successful? And that goes back to the, the four questions. What do you want people to do? How do you communicate it? Then what are the consequences if they're doing it or if they're not? But it really comes down to focusing first on, on really what you want and being specific and with confidence knowing that that is what we need to focus on. I'm reminded by Peter Drucker's comment. It's not enough to try your best. You have to first know what to do and then try your best. Mm. Hmm. So how does productivity factor into safety culture? Is uh, the coach or the cop persona more effective in driving safe yet productive work? Yeah, well, th there's different... It depends really on the cultural maturity and where you're at. And this is where we advise organizations. It may seem seemingly logical, but not enough do it is to describe the leadership style that they want and be specific about that. Some parts of the world and some organizations, they need command and control. Mm -hmm. If you're going into an area to where the employees aren't used to wearing shoes at all or their homemade sandals, then, you know, that's not cajoling and collaboration. We, we need to make sure that we're controlling behavior mm. and just like lockout tag out in, in a lot of the developed world, you know, that's not something we say pretty please. That, that's something we need to consistently enforce, right. but consistently enforcing doesn't mean just saying something when people are disobeying. Mm. So last week I was in Abu Dhabi for the society of petroleum engineers conference. And it's mm. some of the best safety performing companies around the world in the oil and gas sector. Mm. They were probably the first 15 years or so ago when consistently I would be on, on stage with other CEOs and they were probably the first industry I started hearing the top leaders, the senior leaders in the organization saying things like safety is a reflection of leadership capability. If you can't do something as important as safety well, what else aren't you doing well? 
Mm. And I think that's a great conversation to have because I think productivity and, and quality all fall into line if we're focusing on safety, if we're doing the right things. So safe work equals productive work, but, but not everyone appreciates that because we can go too far with the policing or we're focusing more on the tiny little thing rather than what are all the positive things people are doing. And, and that requires that safety has to be integrated into the way that we do our work. But at the same time, we need to make sure that the safety requests that we're asking of people are value added and that the employees have a perception of that value add. To us as safety leaders, it might be of value to ask somebody to do something, a job safety analysis or a pre-job inspection of some kind, but it can't just be paperwork. The employee has to see the value, and if they don't see the value, you end up, again, with that have-to versus want-to culture. So, so the coach is effective if our role is to try to influence. And we, we wrote about this in the steps book, but we built on this model. We really said that safety is three things. It's really three things. Number one, knowing the risks. Number two, knowing what precautions to take to control the risks. And number three, regularly taking those precautions. So when people are regularly taking those precautions, it's become more cultural. But building on that, there's two different types of risks. And we just use plain language so people can see the differences. There are big risks, risks you only need to take once, uh, like linemen working on high-voltage lines and, and not wearing their rubber PPE. You know, that, that's one time, and unfortunately, that's it. But there's also common risks. In a lot of the utility industry, in a lot of those companies we work with, it's not the big risks that are causing the events. It's what they refer to as a, a blue-sky day. It's when everything's working right, and maybe there's a sense of invulnerability or complacency. So there's big and there's common or routine risks. Then what precautions? There are precautions that are required whether they're stated as rules to live by or cardinal sins or however you state that, there are rules that are required to be an employee of that organization. But then there's also precautions that are at the discretion of the individual. And this, again, is where specificity is needed. And then are they regularly taking? We do need to control certain actions in the organization. We can't allow deviation from that. But a lot of the stuff that remains is trying to influence and coach people to go above and beyond. You can't police that. And truthfully, I've never seen a company that's been punished into excellence. <laughs> Absolutely. So obviously you've got a, a lot of great stories from your work. Now, in all of your work with your various clients, do you remember a particular example of a person or a company that really walked this line well, and the the encouragement discipline line, and their efforts really boosted their safety culture and their overall performance. Yeah. So there was a major gas pipeline distribution company that's headquartered in, in Houston, Texas that we worked with. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, that I'll never forget is they were really at the time focusing on getting employees to reverse park or drive through park. And I heard several examples of many of the top leaders that in some of the remote areas of their operation, if they saw an employee's personal vehicle parked correctly off the job at Walmart, the employee, the, the leader would actually spend time going through Walmart trying to find that individual to recognize them. And I thought that's, you know, th th that was a good example. I, I have a head of an EHS for a major paper company and he recognizes it's all about marketing. 
and he challenges his people and he does a lot of recognition, but he's done a good job, which, which I'll refer to in a minute, in really building out that strategy and, and marketing. It's really, to me, the companies that treat their people like customers, the ones that get to know them, build relationships. Uh, there was a manufacturer in Georgia, about a 500-person facility, and Mike was the plant manager's name. And every Thursday, he would grab his number two and a couple of supervisors and a couple of employees and just go walk the facility and talk to people. He called it a safety blitz. I later told him it was more of a culture blitz. Hmm. But he would just go talk to people. And he'd been doing this for about a year since he received that position. And he asked me to come in and take a look at the culture and give him feedback. And I told him that every employee I spoke with firmly believed that Mike knew them by name. And Mike was a little embarrassed when I gave him that feedback. He said, you know, I'm glad to hear that, but I don't. He got with HR and he helped build out a screensaver that he put on all the leaders' computers and laptops that had rotating images of the employee's picture and their name. And his challenge was, we want to know who all these individuals are. I, I mean, there's a location in, in France that I worked with that they had some observation processes in place, and they spent more time focusing on those that were already participating and trying to get more out of those than hounding those that weren't. Uh, I've got a power plant I just finished working with in, in Florida, and the general manager, you know, it's clear that everyone loved and respected that individual because she constantly challenged people to be better but recognizing them very soon when they did. But it's it's the ones that when I ask them, because we do a lot of executive executive and leadership coaching as well, when I ask them what they're reading, leadership books are often mentioned. Uh, they don't do what's referred to as breathing their own exhaust. You know, They realize they will never know all they need to know about leadership, and they're dedicated to self-improvement. But it, to me, it's the ones that really spend the time getting to know their individuals, but also... And if we had time, I'd give you many examples. It's the one that have a clear strategy that's perfectly laid out to everyone. So they're aligned in where we're going, what success is going to look like, where we're at right now, but also where we've come from in our journey and our, our maturing of our performance and culture. The most important things that we're trying to focus on and what everybody's roles and responsibilities are. It's the leaders that realize People have to see themselves as actors in that strategy. So they need to know what their strategy is. They need to know what's res what they're responsible for. They need to have the skills. They need to be held accountable for that. Uh, last example I just remembered was a facility, a chemical plant in California. And this individual leader was reading John Maxwell's book. I think it was 17 Principles of Effective Leadership and was meeting one-on-one -on -one with his direct reports and was they would read one of the principles, a chapter, and then at the end of the month would challenge them on how are they going to apply that at work and to challenge them at home. The following month, they'd have a conversation. How did you apply that at work? And if they wanted to talk about how they applied it in their personal life, great. But when that individual ended up getting promoted up into the organization, it was a long time before they needed to replace that top position because they had felt they had created such a strong team of leaders in that in that organization they didn't really need that oversight of a top plant manager but but again it's it's those that really know their people and value the importance of relationships because if we want more out of people they need to know that we care and if they don't think that we've taken the time to get to know what's important to them to get to know who's important to them covey taught us that we judge others by their actions but we judge ourselves by our intent and employees will only know your actions if they don't know your intent. 
and you haven't taken the time to get to know them and for them to get to know you. Absolutely. So one final question for you, Sean. What's the biggest mistake that a safety manager or a leader can make when it comes to this balance between encouragement and discipline? I think it's back to falling into that trap of management by exception, focusing more on what they don't want rather than what they do. I mean, in safety, we, we spend most of our time and energy measuring and monitoring what we don't want rather than what they do. So it's providing a lot more positive reinforcement. It's There was a cartoon I saw years ago. It had a husband and a wife at the breakfast table, and the husband was telling the wife, I told you 17 years ago when we got married that I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. And you could see that she wasn't so... So, so pleased with that. And I challenge leaders sometimes, and, and I'll, I'll state this in talks and workshops. I'll say, how sick and tired are you of all the positive feedback you get at work? And usually there's a little <laughs> bit of laughs and looking around and making sure the boss isn't in the room. But we right. know the importance of, of recognizing good work when people do it as soon as possible. We just don't do it enough. And the reality is, 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 you know, discipline is, is hard. It's hard because Many of the companies, likely in places that are listening to this right now, can't reveal the details of discipline. So creating the perception that it is fair and just and consistent, it's very hard to do. But it, it also goes back to that trap of not spending the time knowing your people. I mean, think about what, what do most people care about more than anything in this world? And, and the answer is their family. And if you haven't taken the time to get to know, again, what's important to them and who's important to them, then people aren't going to think that you have their best interests in mind. Right. So if we want people to go above and beyond, we have to realize a lot of what remains is influencing discretionary effort, not controlling required behavior. Well, excellent, Sean. This is great advice for our audience, and we're all really looking forward to your presentations at Safety Culture 2018. So thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Now, for our listeners, be sure that you're in the audience for Sean Galloway's educational session, Encouragement and Discipline, When to Be a Coach and When to Be a Cop, at the EHS Daily Advisors Safety Culture 2018 event taking place September 12th through 14th in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, Sean will also be delivering our closing keynote covering important strategic considerations for improving your safety culture so you don't want to miss out. So for more details and to register online, visit live.blr.com or click on the link appearing on this episode's EHS Daily Advisor webpage. As a special bonus for our EHS on Tap listeners, enter the coupon code PODCAST at checkout to take $50 off the total cost of your conference registration. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is Justin Scase for EHS on Tap.